0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, um, in part because I am super excited to share this interview with you. I just spoke with Jonathan Schlesinger about his new book, A World Trimmed with Fur, Wild Things, Pristine Places, and the Natural Fringes of Qing Rule. This came out with Stanford University Press in 2017. And it's a book that's exciting in part because it's bringing together environmental history with multilingual and multiethnic approaches to Qing history with a real sensitivity to uh, the materiality and the vibrancy of documents in archives. So among the things you'll hear us talking about over the course of the next hour are mushrooms and mushroom pickers, pearl mussels, what it was to pearl in the Qing. You'll hear us talking about the emergence of ways of thinking about and policing boundaries. You'll hear us talking about fur, um, fashions for fur identities regarding fur. You'll hear us talking about all kinds of people um, who lived in and around and with the Qing Empire. You'll hear us talking about sandalwood and turtle shells. And you'll hear us talking about the archives. So one of the really exciting things about the book, and I just want to put this right out there, is that Jonathan is super committed, and you'll hear him talking about this, to doing Chinese history in a way that moves beyond Chinese sources, right? And this is, for me, something that's also um, really, really important um, to doing work in Chinese history as well. So you'll hear him talking about his experience in and his use of sources from archives, and Batar, the Mongolian National Central Archive in particular. You'll hear him talking about archives in Beijing, the first historical archive specifically, and he also worked in the National Palace Museum in Taiwan. What's really important about this book, among other things, is that it's showing that if you bring together Mongolian, Manchu, and Chinese sources, a really different kind of story about the Qing, about world history, and about environmental history specifically emerges. Um, so hopefully, uh, this will be a an example or an exemplar of how to do work like this moving forward. It's also a really fun read, and there's just some super cool stuff happening all over the book, um, just in terms of storytelling. So it's a really fun read as well. Okay, with that, I will leave you to it um, and just say thank you for listening to the channel, for supporting the channel, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Jonathan Schlesinger about his new book, A World Trimmed with Fur. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Jonathan. Thanks for writing an awesome book. I love the book, and thank you for making time to talk with me about it.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Carla. It's an honor to be on the podcast. Of
0: course. So, Jonathan, let's start with the big traditional question. How did you come to work on China, and why Qing China specifically?
1: Ah, It's a good question. Um, I think the answer is that I had some charismatic teachers in my life, some really inspiring people, and in particular, first Pamela Crossley Mm. uh, as an undergraduate, and then Mark Elliott in graduate school. And they always uh, got me excited about Qing history in particular. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have like a compelling reason that I started studying China originally. I think um, in high school, I was interested in reading Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and other poets. And they sort of got me interested in this vague sense of China and Japan when I was young. And in college, I started taking Chinese. I had an opportunity to study in Beijing. Um, and it was really from that sort of privilege of being able to study in China that, um, I started making friends and getting interested in China, the place, but I don't know if that explains why I got into Qing history. I think my original answer that it was some special teachers in my life that got me into it. That's, I think the real answer.
0: And that's actually not, um, an unusual kind of answer to that question that I hear, right? It's often, um, at least in my experiences of podcasts are charismatic teachers that either bring people into East Asian studies and or shape the trajectory of kind of what they do once they get there. So let's actually um, get to what um, the book is about. I'm going to say a little bit, um, just a kind of thumbnail sketch for listeners to situate us. Um, and then I'll ask you to talk a little bit about how you came to the project. So the book says, and this is in the words of the book, the empire did not preserve nature in its borderlands. It invented it. Now, the book, I and mean, again, this is in the words of the book, documents the history of this invention, right, the, the this invention of nature in the borderlands, and explores the environmental pressures and also institutional frameworks that informed it. And it does this by focusing on three events that strongly emerged from the archival record, the destruction of Manchurian pearl mussels, the rush for wild mushrooms in Mongolia, and the collapse of fur-bearing animal populations in the borderlands with Russia. And we'll talk about each of these key in the hour to come. Um, But first, Jonathan, what brought you to this particular project? Why did you come or how did you come to focus on this kind of environmental history of the chain for your research? Uh,
1: That's another good question. And I think contingency, again, has a a lot to do with it. Um, You know, in my case, I've always been interested in the environment. Uh, Before graduate school, I I was a backcountry ranger at Olympic National Park in Washington state. And I worked in Redwood National Park. And I think I learned when I was a ranger, just how artificial nature is that uh, there was this full-time staff of people pulling up non-native weeds, telling people uh, how to use the park, where to sleep, where to go to the bathroom. And it struck me that, um, you know, what I maybe had idealized or romanticized as some pure nature maybe was a little bit more complicated. And when I got to graduate school, um, it seemed to me that maybe there was an opportunity to explore environmental history in, uh, Mongolia and Manchuria in similar ways, uh, You know, I think there was a moment where I was on a bus and I was reading about the fur trade in Sakhalin Island and in Hokkaido and a light went off and it occurred to me, oh my goodness, I can connect the histories of Russia and Japan to the history of China if I look at the fur trade. And I got out my notebook and I started scribbling it down. And a few weeks later, I was in a graduate level class with Mark Elliott we were reading. I think the, it was a it was a week where we were studying Manchu Chinese dictionaries from the Qing period. Mm-hmm. We pulled out a text called the Da Qing Shu, or the first Manchu Chinese language dictionary published in the late 17th century. And I looked up the word for one of these fur-bearing animals, a harsa, and lo and behold, there was no Chinese translation for it. And I asked in class, oh, is it the case that there, there's other blanks in the dictionary, which led to sort of uh, me understanding that maybe there's a bigger picture than just the fur trade at work. There's understandings of what are these animals. There's an interaction between Beijing and the frontier. And one thing led to another. And... That's uh, basically how I got started. Awesome.
0: So you've mentioned that this actually started as a dissertation project. So, yes. Jonathan, can you talk about the transition from that to the book that we're talking about? Specifically, were there any ways that you're kind of thinking about the project transformed? How you were shaping it transformed, or otherwise, was there anything really notable for you about the transformation from one form to the other?
1: I did a lot of work to transform it from the dissertation to the book. It took I don't know four or five years to to move from point A to point B. And in that time period, you know, for one, I did quite a bit more research um, on the pearl trade and pearl monopoly in particular, and on the consumption of mushrooms and some other topics as well. Um, but one of the biggest things I had to do for the getting you know, creating this book out of the dissertation was I had to make it shorter. Mm -hmm. The press wanted it to be a more concise story. And I think that really made me face a choice and think about what story that I want to tell. And there I also had to confront, you know, the specter of talking to a wider audience about my research. And it occurred to me that what I was researching was a little bit unconventional. There was like a real weirdness to some of the, the people and the places and the objects. Uh, you know, we don't normally think about necessarily northwestern Mongolia or certain parts of Manchuria or certain people who I wound up studying, like the Orianghai. As being sort of the mainstream in mainstream parts of the grand story of Chinese history. Mm -hmm. And I had to think about why was that the case? What happens if we put um, these people in places at the center? And more importantly, what happens if we try to put things at the center, like the pearl muscles or the pearls themselves. Um, that allowed me to reconceptualize both um, you know, the spaces that I was talking about, like Manchuria and Mongolia, and it helped me think about the people I was talking about in a little bit of a different way.
0: So in the very beginning of the book, um, a persistent theme emerges. And this is one of the really fascinating things. One of, um, I want to say for listeners, many really fascinating things about the project. So throughout the book, you talk about the significance of Manchu and Mongolian sources, and particularly the significance of archival sources for the story that you're telling here. So I think this is perhaps a good place to dive in. Jonathan, can you talk a little bit about, um, I know this is a big question, Because there are all kinds of specific ways throughout the book that it becomes really clear that these sources are really significant and transformative. But for you, um, can you talk a little bit about what you think is so significant about telling a story that incorporates and involves um, Manchu and Mongolian sources in this way?
1: Well, sure. Uh, you know, it is a big part of my book. I, I really want to make um, those archives speak, in part because so much of the history we tell about Chinese frontiers, places like Manchuria, Mongolia, is grounded in published Chinese sources. And the truth of the matter is, is that the vast bulk of documentation the you know, vast bulk of documents in the archives relating to a place like Manchuria or Mongolia are not in Chinese at all at least until the late nineteenth century they 're in Manchu or they 're in Mongolian so just in terms of you know how we can What are the ways to push the field forward? Just reading these documents, taking them seriously, and then triangulating them with the Chinese published record, with the Chinese archival record, allows us to, I think, see a bigger picture about the larger matrix of practices and dynamics in the the Qing world.
0: Um,
1: You know, just on a... For me, it was also just exciting to be able to get into a place like Ulaanbaatar. I I did research in Ulaanbaatar for a year in the archives, and I did research in Beijing for a year in the archives. And both were incredible experiences. In Ulaanbaatar in particular, I was allowed to actually work with the physical paper documents. And some of these documents were... You know largely unread in some cases, you know, I was working with the archivists to unclasp the attachments to the memorials that were being sent from uh, the local level to the court. And it was always a magical experience to see what was gonna be around the corner. And it was always something random. You know, it might be a story about, you know, Russian exiles with tattoos that had illegally crossed the border, or guys shipwrecked who had just been discovered months later and their fingernails were all grown out. Or it was stories about you know hunting tiger cubs or bear cubs and sending them live to the court in Beijing. Um but Interestingly enough, you know, particularly with the case of Manchuria, I I found that there was almost less emphasis on sort of the documents were speaking less about Manchuria than they were about resources, objects. They were really, you know, just document after document about pearls, furs, fish, um, and other objects. And from there, I really um, drew much of the inspiration from my from my book
0: great. So let's actually get into it. Um, And the first chapter, before we get to the chapters that take on these three cases, looks more broadly at um, what you call in the book, the timing and ideological dimensions of growing consumer demand for frontier resources. So this chapter is going to set the stage um, that the rest of the cases will play out on. Now you identify what you call a sea change in the 18th century in China, um, in which case frontier products like like fur, and again, this is in the words of the book, became markers of elite Chinese fashion. Now, this chapter looks especially at the way that fur became a marker of identity, or at least a way to perform certain kinds of institutional identity in the Qing. One of the things um, that you talk about here in chapter one is the ways in which shifts or transformations in sumptuary laws and in gifting practices Charted the emergence of a shared Manchu Chinese material culture as a result of Qing imperial encounter. So, as you put it, fur moved from the court to the streets. Can you talk a little bit for us about what you think is most important um, or interesting about these shifts and their consequences?
1: Sure. Well, you know, fur is a really interesting product. Um, You know, you can look at fur and see sort of the you know, the quintessential elite status marker, or you can look at it and see something which is the most barbaric thing you could possibly wear. You know, I think in, say, for example, the United States today, the reasons you might think fur is barbaric or beautiful uh, are for one set of reasons, but in the Qing, people thought that fur might be barbaric for a different host of reasons. So. You know, as far back as the, you know, at least the Han period, so going back two thousand years, there was this sense that the people living to the north of sort of the civilized world, uh, you know, the world of the Xiongnu, um, or the other people that would succeed them in Inner Asia, that those were the people that wore furs, and that fur came from that region. So even though, in various points in time, we know that lots of people in China wore fur, there's always this discourse out there that fur is somehow less civilized, a little bit savage, a little bit like um, you know wearing you know putrid skins as opposed to wearing something glamorous. Mm-hmm. But in the Qing period, um, you see that really start to change, um, and It's clear that the Qing court is playing a key role in that. So for example, uh, through sumptuary laws, the court makes it mandatory that if you're going to go to uh, the court and you're of a certain rank, then you must dress in furs or you must kneel down on a fur uh, mat. Um, Or if you are doing something for the court, and you do a great job of it, the emperor might send you a fur coat. But it's, when you look at the archival record, we know that fur coats, for example, go from being something that the court only gives to military generals or Manchus or Mongols in the early 17th or the mid-17th century to being something in the 18th century that's given to everyone. I think the 1730s here are a turning point um, where your ethnic status um, means less than it would have, say, 100 years or 50 years earlier when it comes to what kind of gifts will the court give you. Mm -hmm. Um, And in time – you really start to see all sorts of ways in which fur is going mainstream. I think one of the more fun sources, uh, well, there's two sources I think are particularly fun when it comes to these shifts in fashion. One are dictionaries. So that dictionary I mentioned that I first discovered when I was um, first entering my project. uh, Early dictionaries – uh, might have a Manchu word for a type of fur in them, but lack a Chinese word for the equivalent. Fast forward to the 18th century, those words have been filled in. And in fact, there's an evolved discourse about what are these furs? Um, how might the furs of the Qing be tied to you know, classic furs that you might have found in texts that were much older? Um, you know, Are animals that go by a different name in early texts, going by a new name in the Qing. That discourse just didn't exist in the 17th century in the same way in which it will just mushroom in the 18th century.
0: Mm-hmm. To use a, a particular random object. To
1: use an apt metaphor, an apt metaphor. Another uh, you know, key source, I think, are these pawn shop guidebooks. So, uh, we have the published guides that pawn shop owners would use to assess furs. And by the time you get to the early 19th century, it's clear that the people of Beijing, and um, you know, a lot of the Manchus in particular living in Beijing, would be wearing furs in the winter and then pawning them off in the summer. And the fur business was maybe one of the most lucrative business you can go into if you're a pawn shop owner. And the guidebooks just have an enormous, wonderfully diverse range of furs that they talk about, different cuts, different species, different colors. Um, and they also describe, interestingly enough, you know, the, the principles by which you can sort of appraise them. And perhaps the most important principle is where do the furs come from? If they come from Manchuria, uh, then they're top grade. If they come from someplace else, maybe they're not quite so luxurious. So it's interesting in the early in the 17th century, people thought of furs as something they associated with the Manchus with this ancient Xiongnu with the Mongols. Uh, fast forward 100 years, I think people still do associate furs uh, with Manchus, but it's a good thing. Uh, you wear them, and it makes you look all the more elite.
0: Awesome. So from this, we move to the next, there's kind of an interesting move to the next chapter. So you show here at the sort of end-ish of this chapter, that there's a demand for natural resources in the Qing um, that grew between 1700 to 1850 and spurred the growth of new commercial networks across the empire and also between China and the wider world. You also talk about rushes for pearls, for sea turtle shells and for sea cucumber and pearls takes us, I think, really nicely into the next chapter. Between 1785 and 1810, freshwater pearls disappeared from Manchuria, And chapter two looks closely at what happened and situates this within a larger context of the history of pearl mussels in Manchuria, um, particularly in this period. Now, it first talks about the establishment of the Qing freshwater pearl fishery in the Northeast, just for kind of listeners who haven't yet had a chance. To, to read the chapter. And you describe here the way that because of the challenges of getting things to and from the Northeast, the weight of materials traded there mattered. I'm just mentioning this because I think this is super fascinating, right? So you're showing here that like less heavy materials like fur or pearls or ginseng or mushrooms or tea dominated long distance trade there as opposed to like heavier, bulkier stuff like sandalwood or like um, porcelain that would be tradable via the waterways in the So this is just, I think, a really interesting detail that I wanted to mention. Now, you talk a lot in this chapter about tribute obligations among Qing subjects, um, and specifically the relationship between fur here, tribute, but specifically hunter banners, All right. So we're going to see hunter banners throughout the book. Jonathan, who are the hunter banners in this case? um, And why are they important for what's going on um, as we try to understand uh, pearl muscles here?
1: Well, the hunter banners are an interesting category. And actually, my cat just crawled onto my lap. So I don't know if you can Hello, hear cat. the cat. <laughs>
0: the cat's like, we're talking about fur. This is awesome. Also, uh, he like might
1: be. Fish. He's. He might be like muffling <laughs> the audio.
0: But no, no, no. It's totally fine. Cats <laughs> just, are welcome. He, at he just
1: imperiously crawled seen. off. So maybe that incident <laughs> is over. But the hunter banners are an interesting category. Um, you know, in Qing Manchuria, uh, you know, Qing Manchuria was not a homogenous place; it was incredibly diverse, and it was diverse institutionally. Um, I think it's very easy, you know, to be you know we we commonly describe the Northeast as being um, sort of the territory of the three eastern provinces, mm-hmm. which in the Qing period would have been uh, Heilongjiang, Jilin, and uh, what was called Mukden in Manchu, what is today Liaoning. But it's really not so simple. It's not like you have these three territories ruling a place in a singular way. There's all sorts of idiosyncratic institutions and ad hoc institutions that emerged through the course of the 17th century and into the 18th century. Um, one of those institutions is something called hunter banners. And it's, you know, it's a little bit of a difficult name because the people that were in hunter banners were not necessarily hunters and their banners are not really like the eight banners that we normally think of when it comes to the manchus mm-hmm. Um, Instead, there was you know, different types of hunter banners, and there was one specific type um, called the Ula banners who had a monopoly on harvesting of special Manchurian freshwater pearls. So if you go back to the 17th century, the Qing court um, had made a special arrangement, essentially, with the people they identified as the Ula living in – sort of what is today Jilin. And they granted them access to territory, um, to rivers and streams in a larger territory throughout um, the greater three eastern provinces. And no one else was allowed to collect these pearls except for the people they identified as the Ula hunter banners. The word hunter here refers to the fact that they had paid a special tribute in pearls. Whether they actually spent most of their time collecting pearls is a different story. Like we know, for example, they really only spent the summers collecting pearls, and the people that were harvesting them were only the men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a bit of a again, it's a misnomer to think of these people as just hunters. Uh, but the the Ula would eventually um, through the crisis of the late 18th and early 19th century, when the Muslims increasingly become scarce and the pearls that they're producing become increasingly puny in the words of the Chiamong emperor, um, they would get co-opted into the world of the territorial generals. The, the specifically here, the, the general that was in charge of Jilin territory. Um, So administratively, you can see a move where you have all these idiosyncratic groups uh, like the ULA banners who are defined in part by a certain task that they have. They have to collect pearls, um, gaining a new status underneath a territorial administrator. And that's one of the big arguments to try to put forward in uh, chapter two.
0: Awesome, thank you. Now, collecting muscles, um, as you show here, or collecting pearls from these pearl muscles, was not at all an easy or simple endeavor in the chapter um, for listeners who are particularly interested in understanding like the practices and the technologies of what it was to gather um, pearls, the chapter details the pearling process and its challenges, especially the arduousness of the labor and the difficulty of meeting the demand for pearls. Now, there was a rapid decline in the pearl yield in the last years of the 18th century, as you kind of just alluded to, and this continued after a brief recovery in the 1810s. A succession of emperors tried to deal with this problem by issuing various moratoria on pearl collecting. And this brings us to what I want to ask you about. Daoguang in 1821 says a couple of things that are really notable. Um, He aims to conserve the energy of hunters. And he Mm. also wants to, and here's what I want to ask you to talk about, to lovingly care for the lives of mussels. Okay. So Jonathan, what is going on here? Lovingly caring for the lives of mussels. What gives?
1: Yeah, it's one of the more striking things that emerged from the archives to me. Uh, You have a group of people whose job is to produce freshwater pearls for the court. They produce them every single year and submit them as tribute. In the late 18th century, early 19th century, when those numbers plummet, the Qing court responds. And for me, um, the fact that the court cared is – interesting in itself and you know my first instinct was to say oh well maybe the court is trying to protect the pearl fishery in manchuria um for you know essentially because it's interested in money or in profits or it's just being greedy Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and i think that there's an argument to be made for for that there's some evidence that the court really did uh was interested in the fiscal dimensions of pearls, although I think less so with pearls than with other products like furs. Um, But that's not actually what comes out of the documents. What the documents reiterate is that the emperors want to love the pearls. So on the one hand, they're trying to protect the people that are um, harvesting them, but they also want to protect the mussels themselves. the emperor doesn't want to position himself as someone that's just in it for his own personal profit. He wants to show that he loves the muscles. So why would the emperor love the muscles? That's like a very interesting idea. You know, uh, is this mean that the Qing emperors were nascent environmentalists? Well, uh, I think the answer that I found lies in a parallel history of ginseng collection in the same region of Manchuria. Around the same time that the pearls started to disappear, um, ginseng in the wild began to disappear as well. And again, the Qing court intervened with very interesting and drastic measures to get ginseng back to where it was before, to be a thriving plant that could be sent in large quantities to Beijing. Um, and here, the people on the ground responded in ways in which the pearl fishers did not. In the case of ginseng, uh, ginseng pickers actually became ginseng farmers. They domesticated the plant. And you know, by far, most of the ginseng coming into China in the early 19th century would have been the farmed product in Manchuria. But the court here wasn't. Interested in that solution, they had Bannerman go to the farms where ginseng was being cultivated and destroy them, destroy the huts, repatriate the farmers, and you know clear out all the ginseng from the fields. And here you see something similar in the logic. the The emperor says, uh, you know, cultivated ginseng is fake ginseng. Uh, wild ginseng is something different. That's the real stuff. That's the stuff that comes from, you know, the Manchu homeland. That's the stuff that really uh, makes a difference. So I think when it comes to loving the muscles, you see a very congruent discourse where the Qing emperors are interested in protecting what we would think of as a untouched form of. Nature, the non-artificial varieties. Sort of, oh, they're interested in a vision of um, an unspoiled place, Manchuria, that's producing um, natural pearls in its streams and wild ginseng in its hills, and. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: That is you know that leads you to figuring out uh, why do they care about wild manchuria, and here um their interest in manchus and manchuria begins to play a role.
0: Awesome, and the chapter closes with a really interesting discussion about the way that in both these cases, and in the case of the pearl mussels, but also in ginseng, the court, as um, or in the words of the chapter, is empowering military governors, strengthening the policing apparatus, and creating new border controls. And so you say here, again, in the words of the chapter, that the court is using this crisis um, here, the crisis of pearl mussels specifically, to discipline Native Manchur on the one hand, and to create a more coherent and definable Manchuria on the other. Yes. Right? Sorry, did you want to speak to that?
1: No, no, no. I was affirming, yes. Oh,
0: yes.
1: (laughs) This is a key argument of the chapter.
0: Excellent. And this becomes really important looking back to something that you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation about this chapter, which is the idea of the kind of three Eastern territories, right? And you show here that this... um, this uh, these efforts really went hand in hand with the rise or the emergence of this discourse of the three eastern territories as the original Manchu homeland. So this is a really, really interesting chapter um, for all of these reasons. But it's only one of several interesting chapters. <laughs> and the mushrooms are important too. So let's talk <laughs> about the mushrooms. <laughs> chapter three takes us into the mushrooms, and it takes us into a context where there's a mushroom rush. There's a booming demand for mushrooms. In the 1820s, now this chapter looks really closely at the case of a particular Chinese civilian. This is Liu Deshan, who was arrested for forging a permit that allowed him to illegally collect step mushrooms. Okay. So you to pose a question um, by the chapter itself, you ask here, why did the court care about mushroom picking? And the answers you show us can be found in the archives, and especially in the records of this particular case, this Leo case in the Mongolian National Central Archive in Ulaanbaatar, and also in the First Historical Archive in Beijing. Okay, so this becomes a story ultimately of travel restrictions in, or around, in and around Mongolia and the Qing. It becomes a story of uh, Mongolia becoming analogous to a restricted territory and in the emergence of what you call a new politics of nature in Mongolia. So there's so much we can talk about here, Jonathan, but first I want to ask you um, these sources, right? Um, These records that you found in the archives in Mongolia and in Beijing, um, what for you was particularly exciting about these sources and why were these sources so crucial for, or in what ways were they so crucial for or what's happening here for the story that you're telling in this chapter and the way this particular story plays out?
1: Mm. Well, the sources for me were everything. I, you know when I imagined this project um, you know before going to the archives, I had absolutely no sense that I would be writing about mushrooms, <laughs> and <laughs> what I found in the archives was just document after document about the mushroom trade and um, the documents were really weird and interesting. Um, It turns out that I was finding documents as far back as the early, you know, actually, no, mid Chenlong period. So mid 18th century of mushroom pickers who were, um, for example, starting fires. They had started prairie fires by accident um, in Mongolia. And there's, just all these documents about how they had to put out the fire, trying to figure out what caused it, and so on and so forth. But the people who wrote in those early, you know, I shouldn't say early, so mid-Chenlong period documents, they um, they didn't really care that these mushroom pickers were picking mushrooms. You fast forward to the 1810s, and there you start to see. Um, beginning in 1818, 1819, more of a sense of panic that it's not just dozens or hundreds of mushroom pickers, it's thousands of men every single spring um, coming up across the border from um, their Chinese home counties into uh, a Mongol banner territory. Banners, the, the administrative unit of Qing Mongolia. And the the administrator in charge of this banner, a figure called the jasak, um, started to complain that he had no control over these men. And at first, the documents, um, you know, start telling about, uh, you know, how there's special rules that you need, essentially like a passport in the Qing world, if you're a Chinese uh, merchant or or migrant to enter Mongol territory. And these guys didn't have them. But very quickly into the 1820s, you see this transition where the, the language of the documents really starts to ramp up, where they start to describe these mushroom pickers as increasingly sort of evil figures who lack a sense of decency and morality. And they describe the – you know what they're doing as um, completely against the norms of the banner, and then not just the norms of the banner, but the norms of all of Mongolia. And eventually, by the eighteen twenty late eighteen twenties, not just the norms of Mongolia, they're violating the very fabric of the Qing Empire and what it means for there to be an emperor. It was a special relationship to his Mongol constituents, and simultaneously they start to emphasize the um, the destruction the destruction that the Mongol no I'm sorry that the Chinese mushroom pickers are bringing to the Mongol land um, that they're. You know, wantonly digging holes, and they're starting fires, and they're hunting all of the fish, and they're killing all of the marmots, and they're starting vegetable gardens. And in some, they're making it impossible for Mongol herders to sort of live their traditional way of life, or at least traditional way of life uh, as imagined by these administrators. And um, it's only with this big case of this man, Liu Dashan, who was found guilty of forging, you know, forging essentially a passport to cross into Mongolia and collect uh, mushrooms, uh, that you see the, uh, the Board of Punishments and the Qing court itself intervene and establish a new legal precedent, criminalizing uh, mushroom pickers and, oh, I should not say criminalizing Chinese mushroom pickers going to Mongolia.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the really ahead. interesting things, just to kind of um, put a, just to mention, in addition to taking us into the mechanics of the sentencing, right, and, you're, and showing us Um, The ways that particular analogies are used in the sentencing, right? So picking mushrooms is analogized to picking rhubarb, and picking mushrooms in Mongolia specifically is analogy is analogized to poaching in imperial parks, which is really really interesting. Ultimately, what the chapter does it's it's showing us that controlling mushroom picking, like in the way that you were describing, right, is really not about the mushrooms so much as it's about controlling people, and specifically controlling kind of the Mongol character of. Mongolia. So you talk a lot here, um, just for listeners um, who haven't had a chance to read it, about um, the rhetoric of purity and the idea of purity that becomes really crucial to what's going on. Um, So did you want to talk kind of briefly about that, Jonathan, the idea of purity as it animates what's happening here?
1: Sure. Um, Well, one of the things, just to go back one question, Mm -hmm. that I found in the documents that struck me is that a lot of these mushroom pickers are they're not sort of like strapping like dudes in their teens and twenties. Some of them are in their like seventies and they've been living in Mongolia for uh, decades and some, some cases over 50 years. And in many cases, the mushroom pickers actually have Mongol names or hybrid Mongol Chinese names. And Sometimes it's clear that there's forms of intermarriage uh, taking place as well. Uh, so it's a very mixed-up world. And the documents come back to this idea of, in Manchu, it being sualanga jambi. It's mixed up. The whole, uh, it seems like you can't really tell this from that in this world. So what purity means, uh, well, purity has a lot of meanings, aryon in Mongol, Ogo, and Manchu. But here, in context of these documents, um, what they're saying is, well, actually, there's one quotation that was really wonderful in a slightly different context, where um, there was this idea of, to make the land pure, you have to separate the Mongols from the Chinese, the lamas from the laymen, and the men from the women. Mm -hmm. And in the case of this one banner where uh, the Odasham was caught, um, separating the Mongols from the Chinese is paramount. So if someone's been living for 50 years in this banner, they have a Mongol name uh, and they might even have uh, sort of a Mongol wife. It doesn't matter. They are Chinese. They have to be repatriated and removed. All Chinese mushroom pickers must be rounded up forcibly, if possible, and sent back to a Chinese county, the Mongols, um, who may have been harboring these mushroom pickers or working with them or sheltering them, um, they need to be investigated and to make sure that they're acting, um, like proper Mongols and the land, um, needs to be, um, made pure, um, you know, purity in the documents is always, um, It shows up as part of a verbal phrase where the object of purification, that which is to be made pure, is always the land, Mm -hmm. the Mongol steppe. It's the place. And this project of separating the Mongols from the Chinese is uh, inseparable from this idea that you need to recreate the ideal Mongol step, which involves stopping all mushroom picking, all marmot hunting, hole digging, and so forth.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much, Jonathan. Now, this is a story that's going to continue in some ways into the next chapter, but in a different context. So this uh, fourth chapter looks at the Qing fur crisis. Now, the Qing empire's fur tribute systems, as you show here, nearly collapsed between the 1830s and 1850s. The chapter, among lots of other really interesting things here, looks um, at th- phenomena like the challenges of traveling for tribute collection, right? It looks at how um, traveling for tribute collection slowed down in part because of concerns with diseases like small t- smallpox, for example. Um, and I mention this because this um is a similar kind of thing that we see coming out of this chapter that i really love as the kind of thing that comes out of the chapter where you talk about the specificities of the experience of collecting pearl muscles for example i mean you're not just talking in general about you know the phenomena you're really taking us into the material experience of what it was to be a person doing these things in a way that i think is really really exciting it's one of the things that i'm really excited about in this book so so this chapter looks specifically at the challenges of um, traveling for tribute collection in terms of furs. Now, it focuses on the case of a group of people you talked about um, very early in our conversation. This is the Oriankai of northwestern Mongolia. And you both introduce us to who they were, um, talk about the fact that they're paying tribute in furs, and also take us into this case in which the court is simultaneously trying to protect again the purity right of kai territory and also protecting their hunting activities okay so there's a couple of things very briefly um, that I want to ask you about one of the things is um, really the kind of part of the environmental history story that you're telling here where you're focusing not just on what's happening with the people but also what's happening with the animals so one reason for the fur crisis or one reason informing the fur crisis here is that animal populations and their movements didn't correspond necessarily to to imperial jurisdictions. And so authorities, as you show here in the words of the book, constantly had to adjust to local ecology. Um, so Jonathan, can you talk for just kind of briefly about the significance of paying attention to the animals here as actors in the story, which seems really important to what you're doing in this chapter?
1: Yeah. Um, well, when it comes to furthers, there's all sorts of different animals. So the Kai, for example, um, it was the court demanded that they submit an annual tribute of sable furs, in particular, to the court. Um, they established this relationship in the 1750s with the conclusion of the Dzungar Wars, and it would remain true until the early 1910s, like right up until the collapse of the Qing Empire. Um, but almost immediately, it was clear that there wasn't enough sables to support the demand, uh, that the court was putting on each individual, uh, household. And what happened is the court wound up using an older exchange rate that had been in place uh, in the time of the Dungar Empire, um, which the Oriang were part of, which said that if you didn't have enough sables, you could submit a uh, squirrel or otter or leopard and a host of other animals. Um, and each animal has its own way of interacting with the world. But with sable in particular, sable have a very long range And they're not necessarily the most social animals, so they tend to disperse widely. Um, It's clear from um, studies that were done uh, uh, in the Soviet Union, for example, uh, that if you tried to establish a special uh, park to protect sable populations, it was really difficult because the sables would just leave. They would go someplace else. And in the case of, uh, you know, the Oiranghai, they live right up on the border. You know, today, Oriang, the people that you know are descendants from the Oiranghai, some live in Mongolia, some live in uh, Russia, and in the Qing period, it's all Qing territory. But the Oiranghai were right up against the uh, Russian border. You know, ditto for many of the communities living. In the far northeast, they were some in some cases, living very close to Russian territory. So if you kill a sable, In Russian territory, that's a sable that might have gone over to the Qing side, and vice versa. It's kind of um, it's not like forestry, you know. I think there's some like satellite images you can look at to see ah like uh, you know people stopped logging right at a national border some in some cases, but with sables, they're always on the move and they're kind of avoiding each other most of the time. Um, So in order to tell the history of the drastic decline in sable populations, which isn't just taking place in Orianghai uh, territory in the early 19th century. It's happening in the Northeast. It's happening in Russia as well. You need to take it into account the, the sables on the move mm-hmm. because uh, it's, not, it's impossible to tell like, a strictly local story because the sables just leave. That's
0: right. Now, one of the things um, that helps you understand this uh, in the course of the chapter is the paperwork that comes out of this uh, bureaucracy, right? And you, you talk about the volumes of paperwork that attend to the bureaucracy of hunting and fur tribute. Now, one of the things that's really interesting here, and this is um, perhaps the last thing I'll ask you about this chapter um, before we kind of uh, move to our own conclusion, right, um, and the conclusion of the book. But one of the things that happens is that, again, attending to the importance of the sources you show here that the Manchu and the Chinese records of the fur crisis actually are telling different stories, right? And this relates to um, the nature of tribute and um, the potential to replace um, certain kinds of skins with other skins that you were just talking about. Now, there are differences, for example, as you show here, in the kinds of fur pelts that Manchu records say were submitted and the Chinese records say were received, right? So, Jonathan, as a way to maybe kind of wrap up our conversation of this chapter— Why are these differences important for the story that you're telling here? And for you, what's significant about the bringing these sources together to tell this story, especially in light of the conflict? Well,
1: you know, at the heart of my research is the conviction that, um, reading sources that tell Chinese history, you need to sort of move beyond Chinese sources and look at Manchu and Mongol sources in particular. And I think there's, there's, um, I think it's easy to think sometimes that even if you're looking at a text that ostensibly should be identical because it's translated, for example, that there's no need to look at the Manchu version, that um, you can sort of read the Chinese and get the full story. Uh, what I found is that it's really not true, that the Manchu sources, even when it's just you know tallying the number of squirrels or sables being sent to Beijing can be, interestingly enough, very different from the Chinese sources. So um, you know, in this specific case, the governor general, the person in charge of Ulyasetai, um writes a report in Manchu, uh, sometimes with a Mongol or Manchu or Chinese attachment. Uh, listing all the different animals once again, uh, of all the different pelts being sent to Beijing. And he'd write this memorial in Manchu. When the pelts arrived in Beijing, the Imperial Household Department, the part of the bureaucracy that received the pelts, would write a second memorial, this one in Chinese, reporting the number of pelts received and ostensibly they should be the same. But what you find is that for several decades, they don't add up at all, but they're made to look like they're identical. So, uh, you know, fewer, uh, sables are reported, uh, you know, sent than sables reported arriving and fewer squirrels are reported, um, arriving than reported sent. And it's, you know, a little sleuthing turns up the fact that the Imperial Household Department was almost certainly corrupt in this case. That they were using the First Treasury to, uh, you know, pocket their own, uh, you know, line their own pockets with with wealth. But they were trying to make the documents look identical, and it's only by you know looking at both of them do you start to see this pattern emerging. Um, it's to me like a very simple, but, you know, evocative example of why reading these sources can matter.
0: Awesome. So, Jonathan, as we come to or toward the conclusion of our own conversation, we also come to the conclusion of the book. This is a really rich conclusion that takes us back into some of the really important conceptual points that the book is making throughout the course of these case studies and also moves us forward to think expansively about some of the many ways that the book is making a contribution to the historiography, not just of environmental history or of Qing history, but also of world history. History. So there's a lot we could talk about here, and I'm just going to ask you one question, um, but feel free to talk about really whatever you think um, is most important for us to know about what you think is crucial here. Notably for me, you talk here about the importance of rethinking the global history of nature outside of a Eurocentric paradigm. So as a way of bringing us to our conclusion, Jonathan, why is it important um, to you that we move outside of a Eurocentric paradigm to rethink the global history of nature? And what are the potential um, kind of consequences of doing so?
1: I mean, it's a really great question. Um, The... I think what I found through the course of my research consistently with the case of the disappearing pearls, with the case of the mushroom pickers, and with the case of the Orianghai fur trappers is that um, the empire responds in a very dramatic fashion to each of those crises. And in the case of the Orianghai and with the mushroom pickers, you see this discourse of purity. Of purifying the land by creating clear jurisdictions, separating Mongols and Chinese, and restoring the territory and the environment of the territory to what the court sees as its ideal, original state, state of being. Um, the, The state of being that's untouched by sort of the ravages of time that we're taking in by the modern economy or the tribute system in those time periods. And ditto with the the pearls. You don't see a language of purity there, but you do see this idea that we need to protect these muscles because um, because we want to lovingly care for them. Um, now I didn't know exactly what to do with this information, but it was clear to me that that there's a real parallel with what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, and with the most famous example of an invention of nature, uh, the one that takes place in uh, Europe and in North America. Now, nature is like, <laughs> it's like the best of words, it's the worst of words. It kind of means so many different things to different people. And, you know, I think for me, what I'm interested in is a specific sense of nature, one that Bill Cronin called the wrong nature, this idea of an untouched ideal um, place. And um, I don't think that what's happening in the West is happening um, sort of for reasons that are wholly uh, unique to sort of, the world of Europe and America. By studying the Qing, it's clear that um, there's just a larger matrix of ideas and narratives that if you move away from um, nature as sort of a static philosophical category and think of it as uh, really a story uh, – <laughs> It's, it's, it's an element in a story about sort of a pure place that is corrupted, attached to very concrete meanings, uh, uh, in a very sort of specific context of environmental, major environmental change. It's clear that the Qing, um, forces us to reconsider what's happening in the West. And for me, just saying that is almost enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think, uh, What it also allows us to do is to isolate certain elements um, in the creation of nature that really matter. And for me, uh, one of the key elements here is the state intervening and sorting out people. Um, That, to me, is one of the consistent things so that uh, the Qing empire here is the key actor um, to be considered.
0: So, Jonathan, we're now at the end of our conversation. We could talk at much more length about any of these chapters, and we could easily talk, and I really mean this for another couple hours, about the book, right? It's a really, really rich uh, story and study. But in the absence of that, is there anything, um, as we move to a close, that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, for
1: me, um, one of the things that I got very interested in with the book was – the context of these resource rushes that uh, that I studied in detail in Manchuria and Mongolia, because um, it's clear, and I, I explore this in uh, the first chapter, that um, as the population is tripling and the amount of land under cultivation is doubling in China through the course of the 18th century, there's another story that's not talked about as much, and that is that there's these lightweight high value natural resources that are being, that have become the subject of Russia's in the late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, So if you think about the context for uh, Pearl's, mushrooms and fur. It's not just a Qing context, it's this larger periphery around China. So, uh, as you mentioned, sandalwood in Hawaii, uh, sea otters in California, uh, sea cucumbers in Fiji or the northern coast of Australia, sea turtles in uh, what would be modern day Indonesia. All of these resources are being exploited to an unprecedented degree and in most cases they're going bust by the 1840s um, to feed This uh, you know, the new consumer demands. And for me, it's just interesting to think about this alternative geography that allows us to move beyond um sort of frontier studies or Qing history or Chinese history, uh, and to think of a zone that encompasses both sort of histories we would think of normally as part of international history or frontier history, um, and break down some of these conventions, the, through which we use to study history normally.
0: And now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by?
1: Ah, that's this is actually what I'm inspired by. <laughs> oh, great. This is what I'm inspired by. I'm really interested in trying to figure out a way to tell history of this larger region in this time period that gets at... Um, some of the dynamics that matter. And I found one case study that's going to be a microhistory which will do this work. Um, you know, in short, it involves five mysterious um, castaways that wash ashore Jeju Island off the southern tip of Korea in 1801. Um, no one can identify who they are or where they come from. Um, they there's a much description of what they're wearing. Uh, they describe uh, two of them as being black or dark blue. Um, they uh, wind up sending these castaways to Beijing, where they don't actually make it there. They get to Mukden or modern Shenyang. There's another investigation to figure out who they are. They can't figure out who these castaways are. There, they send them back to Jeju Island, and there. Um, translators are able to compile a dictionary of their language of 103 words, and the dictionary is just completely weird and wonderful. I mean, it has what you might expect to be in a short dictionary. I mean, I should take a step back. If you could only say 103 words to someone, like what would they be? <laughs> and and in this like dictionary has like the numbers, like one 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. It has the cardinal directions. It has um, words for food and spoon and chopsticks. Um, but then it gets into like ivory. The word rhinoceros is in there and um, you know penis and vagina and a bunch of other words that all in a very concrete world, concrete way, describe you know a certain form of common ground that people had in this context. And the idea that rhinoceroses, are part of this common ground to me is completely riveting It makes complete sense in the context of the rhino horn trade and um, the ivory trade and all the other resources that are circulating around. So what I'm writing is a micro history of the lives of these people. I've you know, completed a bunch of the research in Beijing and the archives. Uh, I went to Jeju Island to photograph the beach and it's now just a matter of um getting into the deeper story of who they are and where they come from.
0: Well, that also sounds awesome. So we'll definitely talk about that when that's ready too. We'll have a lot to talk about in terms of dictionaries. But in the meantime, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time out of that to talk about a really wonderful book. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations.
1: Thank you, Carla. I'm sorry that my cat interrupted halfway no, through. I
0: know, it's great. <laughs> You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very, very much for joining us at the podcast and check us out again next time.